Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I want to explore leadership and the skills leaders must have in order to make changes in companies and entire industries. Robbie, in our recent Diving Deep episodes, you've talked about the three mega forces about to impact American medicine, inflation, progressive shortage of nurses, and growing physician burnout. And you've described the middleman mentality, which patches over healthcare difficulties and implements point solutions, rather than addressing the underlying foundational problems. How does leadership factor into these problems? Jeremy, the lack of effective leadership is central to the challenges our nation faces. As you mentioned, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I tell students leaders have a choice. They can take advantage of the inefficiencies in any industry, something that I think of as friction. It generates heat, but fails to make progress. And in that way, they can maximize their profits, or they can figure out how to eliminate the friction. As an example, it's hard for patients to make a doctor's appointment with the average wait in an urban city now is 26 days. A company like ZocDoc can find a physician with an opening, but the application doesn't address the reasons appointments are so hard to find. And it doesn't place the patient's medical care for this new problem in the context of all the other medical problems he or she may be having. Of course, as a patient, you're grateful for the service and happy to pay for the convenience. But the next time you need medical help, it's likely to be harder to access than easier. Similarly, if you need a prescription filled, you're likely to be surprised by the cost at a local pharmacy. GoodRx will solve that problem through a coupon. But should the drug you require be one they don't have coupons for? You're out of luck. Americans pay twice as much for medications as other countries, and addressing the underlying reasons why isn't something GoodRx is working to change. How does this lack of leadership manifest itself at the macro level? Jeremy, the numbers paint a horrifying picture of a U.S. medical system in crisis. Today, four in 10 patients face significant healthcare debt. Clinicians have hit rock bottom with nearly two thirds reporting symptoms of burnout, leading to, quote, higher rates of alcohol abuse and suicidal ideation, as well as increased medical errors and worse patient outcomes. That's according to the U.S. Surgeon General. The United States currently spends twice as much per person in healthcare as other wealthy nations, yet clinical performance in the U.S., it lags all 10 of our closest peer countries. And we're not talking about insignificant measures. Life expectancy in the United States 
That's last compared to these other nations, nearly five years behind most of them. Childhood mortality is higher. Maternal mortality is two to three times higher than in other nations, unless you're a black woman, in which case it's eight times higher. In this moment that begs for bold leadership, no one is answering the call. Can you say more about these problems, Robbie? Jeremy, let's look at preventable and chronic diseases. These contribute to 90% of deaths and medical costs. Here we're talking about illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, obesity. These are the leading causes of heart attacks, strokes, and kidney failure, as well as a variety of cancers and infections. It's not that we don't know how to address most of these problems. It's that we don't take the actions needed to be successful. And rather than leaders making the fundamental changes to how medical care is organized, reimbursed, and technologically supported, they look to create programs to get around the specific problems. If you step back and look, the American healthcare system most closely resembles a 19th century cottage industry. There are doctors scattered across the community, unconnected with each other. They're paid on a piecemeal basis that we call fee-for-service. The more you do, the more you get paid, regardless of whether it adds tremendous value or none at all. And physicians continue to rely on technology from the last century, although it really is from the century before, as the most common way that doctors communicate vital information about patients, that's the fax machine, an 1834 invention. You might think that someone would recognize how absurd this approach is and the impossibility of it working in the 21st century. You might assume that leaders would rail against the inefficiencies of doctors working in individual physician offices, that they'd criticize the current method of payment, and they would embrace tools like data analytics and artificial intelligence. But with minor exceptions, none of this is happening. Even the majority health systems that are capitated, meaning that they receive a single payment to provide care to a population of patients, they continue to pay and reward doctors and hospitals through a fee-for-service methodology, not a prepaid value-based capitated one. And even when the doctors are part of the same medical group, they're likely to work in their own offices or in small practices. It sounds like moving from fee-for-service to capitation is a vital step in your opinion. Can you please explain why? Sure, happy to do so. You know, fee-for-service made sense, Jeremy, in the last century. People saw a physician for an acute problem, appendicitis, pneumonia, or broken bone. The doctor took out the appendix, prescribed penicillin, or reset the fracture. The cost was reasonable. Intermittent care provided by a single doctor and reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis worked, given the problems that medicine was treating. The care required today is different. Now the most frequent problems are chronic. They affect patients every day. And the treatment increasingly involves teams of physicians for which collaboration and cooperation are vital. And the cost of taking care of a patient with a heart attack, stroke, or cancer, that often exceeds $100,000 or more. In that situation, the biggest opportunities to increase quality and lower cost 
or by preventing chronic diseases, avoiding complications from them, and eliminating medical errors. And the current fee-for-service system pays little for these outcomes, and it rewards doctors and hospitals dramatically more when they intervene to reverse a problem compared to preventing and avoiding it in the first place. What many people fail to recognize is how effectively capitation aligns incentives. You know, Jeremy, there's an expression in business school, tell me what you incentivize and I'll describe the outcomes you're going to get. The incentives we have today don't align with the biggest opportunities to improve the health of people and save lives. As an example, research has shown that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases life expectancy two and a half times more than adding 10 specialists. And yet, we continue to train a growing number of specialists and far too few primary care doctors. And what patients desire, it's not to suffer a heart attack, stroke, or cancer in the first place. It's no fun having to undergo major surgery or other interventional procedures once the avoidable problem arises. What's best for everyone is to eliminate, prevent, better manage chronic disease and avoid these difficult, painful, life-threatening problems in the first place. Can you give more specific actions capitation encourages? Sure. There's dozens of them, but here are two. When I was CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we looked at total joint surgery. At the time, the average patient in the United States spent three days in the hospital. A few community inpatient facilities were looking at the possibility of shortening that three-day hospital stay to two days, but it also included an additional one to two days in a skilled nursing facility. We approached the opportunity differently. By beginning physical therapy before surgery, by using longer acting local anesthetics, by beginning physical therapy in the recovery room, and by providing video follow-up the next day at the patient's homes, and as often as needed, we were able to do total joint replacements on an outpatient basis for 60 to 70% of patients with earlier ambulation and better clinical results. Similarly, around 40% of the time, when a primary care doctor requests specialty help, it's mainly for information. We realized we could use video and digital applications to bring a specialist into the exam room with the primary care doctor and patient being there. And in this way, not only make a diagnosis, but also begin treatment at the time of the first primary care visit, not waiting for the specialty one, and, a, and in most cases, obviate the need for a specialty visit in any time going forward. In a fee-for-service system, hospitals would resist an approach that would lead to outpatient total joint replacement since it drastically would reduce their revenues. And specialists, rather than being willing to consult virtually, would insist on seeing the patient in their office in order to be able to bill for the care and get paid more for additional diagnostic tests and progressively complex treatments. All of what you're suggesting for the future sounds so much better than what currently exists today. Robbie, why has so little progress been made? This gets back to the middleman mentality you mentioned at the beginning of the show. It's a lot easier to hire a team of nurses and doctors to care for patients with chronic disease 
as an add-on, a point solution, rather than evolve the entire healthcare delivery system. And it's more guaranteed and profitable to charge for these added services rather than go at risk based on whether the program you develop actually keeps people healthier and lowers medical costs. The fact that the cost of all these added people and administrative overhead offsets nearly all of the cost savings, that doesn't matter to the companies providing the service as long as someone's willing to pay them for the added care. Similarly, Jeremy, it's easier to set up a contract with a nursing home at a low per diem rate than change the operative flow in ways that allow patients to go home the same day. Getting surgeons to join together in new operational ways proves difficult. And for many surgeons, it's just easier to keep the patient in the hospital than invest the time coordinating the pre-admission physical therapy and evaluation, the operative changes that would be required, and the post-discharge follow-up, including virtual visits at home. One fundamental problem in healthcare, as opposed to tra travel or retail, is that the entity that pays for the care is different than the person who receives the care. This creates perverse incentives, often with the benefits for the providers of care being at odds with what would benefit patients the most. What do you mean, Ravi? Well, Jeremy, let's use orthopedics as an example. In the total joint example we discussed, it would be the hospital or the doctor who has to invest the added time and resources into moving the care from inpatient to outpatient. It would be the insurer and the employer or government payer who saves the money. It's again why I think a capitated arrangement is so much better than fee-for-service. In such a pay-for-value structure, everyone benefits from the reduced costs and better outcomes. It's why I'm such a strong proponent of the principle that capitation must happen at the provider level, not the insurance company. And of course, there would have to be checks and balances so the superior quality, greater ease of access, and higher patient satisfaction were rewarded, not just lower costs. The biggest problem with the middleman mentality is that it proves highly profitable and relatively low risk, even when the value for the patient is minimal. That's why we're seeing private equity companies entering healthcare at an ever greater rate. Bring all the orthopedists or ER doctors in a single community into a single medical group, and now you have the opportunity to improve quality and lower costs, but you also have the ability to use the monopolistic control simply to drive prices higher. And rarely are we seeing the higher quality and lower cost that, it, that the approach could produce, and increasingly we're paying the price for the monopolistic control that this process creates. I'm increasingly hearing about direct primary care and concierge medicine. Are these possible solutions? Direct primary care and concierge medicine are becoming more common. There are responses to the difficulties in navigating the American healthcare system. In general terms, both involve paying either one primary care doctor or a group of primary care physicians an annual fee for added attention. There are tremendous variations in the model with some doctors charging up to 
$10,000 a year and being available 24 by seven and others with a much reduced fee, but less personalized availability and insurance billing expected in addition to the subscription fee. But the popularity of the model speaks to the gaps in the current primary care model. In the United States, primary care is underfunded, receiving only about 6% of total healthcare expenditure. As a result, doctors are forced to see more patients in a day than appropriate, leading to 15-minute visits. The outcome is that there isn't adequate time to focus on all required preventive services, all of a patient's chronic diseases, and all of an individual's wellness opportunities. It shouldn't be a surprise that life expectancy in the United States is now no better than two decades ago. That's why I'm such a strong believer in capitation. Through that model, the value of primary care becomes obvious and the incentives align for medical groups to respect and pay primary care doctors appropriately. Although like you, I want to see the healthcare system transformed into something better. Why would anyone want to lead that process when they have such a high probability of financial success benefiting from the friction in the current system rather than trying to eliminate it? Jeremy, I agree. It's always harder to run uphill than downhill. But there are three reasons someone might choose to invest in transforming American healthcare. First, although point solutions are profitable, there's a far bigger prize awaiting individuals and organizations that can solve the manifold issues related to healthcare delivery and insurance. As we discussed in the last Diving Deep episode, the contenders include not only medical groups and hospital systems, but also big corporations like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart. As you remember, these healthcare giants are furiously acquiring pharmacies, physicians, and insurance partners as we speak. And these are the pieces they'll need to dominate the industry. Second, not everyone is doing great in medicine today. Some of healthcare's biggest players are struggling mightily. Hospital margins have eroded under the weight of inflation and the shift to outpatient care. Medical groups have suffered financial losses throughout the COVID pandemic, and they now face declining Medicare reimbursements in 2023. Community doctors are experiencing both declining revenues and diminishing workplace satisfaction. For some, a radical pivot may be their best and only chance to stop the bleeding. Finally, though many healthcare players are driven by financial gain, medicine has long attracted individuals motivated by the desire to help others and save lives. Generate Generations and decades ago, you have the Mayo Brothers who founded the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Sidney Garfield, who started what today is Kaiser Permanente. Well, recently you saw this mission-driven spirit during the earliest days of the pandemic, when doctors and nurses selflessly put the health of patients ahead of their own lives. They didn't have the protective gear they needed, and there were no vaccines or treatments available. Yet doctors and nurses worked 12 and 24 hours at a time risking infection, severe disease, and death. The sense of purpose will drive some clinicians to lead the process of change and inspire like-minded individuals to join the cause. Regardless of their motivations, all potential leaders face the challenges of where to begin. My suggestion, reframe the problem. How would you recommend framing the leadership challenge? 
Jeremy, in 1998, shortly after I was named CEO in Kaiser Permanente, I visited the Oregon Health Sciences Center to keynote a conference on healthcare in the coming century. As I wandered the halls after my talk, a sign caught my attention. In large, bold letters across the top, it said, cost, access, quality. And below in tiny font, it said, pick any two. I found the message appropriate for the time, even if a bit sardonic. Back then, most administrators believed it was possible to improve in two of these areas, but only at the expense of the third. Unfortunately, they were right. Even in the 1990s, medical practice lacked the knowledge, technology, and processes required to achieve excellence in all three. Almost three decades later, this outdated mentality persists despite radical scientific and technological advances, including evidence-based practices, deep data analytics, smartphones, telemedicine, and artificial intelligence. Can you provide some more examples of what you mean? Jeremy, to healthcare's current leaders, the quandary of cost, quality, and access goes something like this. Sure, it's possible to enhance the quality of and access to care. All you have to do is hire more nurses to assist patients with chronic diseases. But doing so always leads to unsustainable higher costs. And that's just the price you need to pay. Likewise, it's possible to stem financial losses by shutting down poor performing hospitals. And it might even be possible to boost quality of care by replacing those facilities with a single center of excellence in a nearby community. But doing so would limit access for people without reliable transportation, many of whom work multiple jobs to make ends meet. And again, that's often seen as just the cost of making the improvement. That's why I believe that leadership in the 21st century is best defined as the desire and ability to improve quality, access, and affordability all simultaneously. But in that quest, leaders will encounter major challenges. What type of major challenges do you see leaders encountering in working to transform American medicine? Jeremy, for one, they'll have difficulty winning over physicians who deliver care. Doctors dislike authority and prefer a flat collegial structure. Anyone who seeks to wield command over clinicians will find the effort similar to herding cats. And unlike in process-driven industries where decisions hinge on data and collaborative thinking, physicians value their independence. They resist any attempt to standardize care, often dismissing evidence-based approaches as cookbook medicine. Furthermore, physicians are trained to challenge data and resist centralized power. To embrace change, they'll need to be thoroughly convinced of the benefits. Still, despite these obstacles, I believe that success is possible. Robbie, I like the optimism, but it sounds as though the challenges will be massive. What will it take? To achieve excellence in healthcare, leaders must possess the ability to change people's minds, generate emotion, and maintain courage in the face of adversity. To accomplish all three, they'll need to apply three anatomic structures differently than they might have in the past. The success will be determined by how they use their brains, their hearts, 
and their spines. Can you elaborate about the expanded role through which leaders will need to use their brains? Happy to do so, Jeremy. Medical students are selected based on standardized tests, which aim to measure intelligence and problem-solving ability. Therefore, leaders who wish to drive change in medical practice must lead with logic, presenting a clear vision, offering sound arguments, engaging in intellectual debate. In addition, they must listen and work alongside clinicians, helping them weigh the pros and cons of change before mandating them. Leaders help people see what's possible in the future. They provide context about why a particular approach is better than the alternatives that exist. They explain why the solutions of the past that worked well then will fail going forward, and they help people see why this new direction will be better, both for the people who receive the care and those who provide it. The successful leaders also recognize that they must avoid the mistake of believing that the brain is the only or even the most important anatomic structure necessary to connect with others. What is the second organ needed? In addition to using their brains to help people see what's possible, leaders need to inspire and motivate them to move forward despite the risks. That's where the heart is particularly effective. The mind is compelled by logic. The heart is moved by emotion, passion, and the power of story. Leaders who convey powerful narratives and patient testimonies are more successful in connecting with others and helping people overcome the fear of change. Passion is equally important because no one cares how much a leader knows unless they know how much the leader cares. When leaders express a sincere desire to help others and save lives, they form a powerful bond with clinicians. Reconnecting doctors and nurses with a higher sense of purpose that has the power to touch the heart in ways that even the most logical argument can't. I get all of that, Robbie. Well, where does the spine come in? Jeremy, even when people are convinced that change is important, they still need the courage to act. Leaders must demonstrate both resolve and resilience during the painful transition process. The most common question I get from future leaders is, what do I do if I get pushback? And I tell them, if you're not encountering resistance, you're not leading. Helping people move forward in the face of uncertainty, that's a key leadership skill. And a strong spine supports the leader in hard times, and it gives followers confidence that the future will be better than the present. I'd be remiss in not asking you about your own leadership journey. You began as a plastic surgeon specializing in helping children with cleft lip and palate and ended up the head of the nation's and probably the world's largest medical group, as well as being recognized by modern healthcare as one of the nation's most influential and powerful healthcare leaders. What was the arc of your journey? Jeremy, as you mentioned, I went from Yale Medical School to Stanford University for my surgical training, and then I took a job in Kaiser Permanente at the Santa Clara Medical Center. Prior to completing my surgical residency, I had planned to travel to South America for a year to fix children born with cleft lip and palate. That changed four months before graduation when I received a phone call from the chief of surgery at Kaiser Santa Clara. He said that the plastic surgeon had died in a tragic plane crash and they needed someone to fill in at Santa Clara for six months until they could hire a permanent individual and asked whether I'd be willing to fill in 
that gap. I didn't know anything about Kaiser Permanente, but I figured, what could I lose by helping out? When I arrived, I loved the environment. There were dedicated doctors working collaboratively to maximize medical outcomes for patients. There was an inspiring mission-driven spirit that I found irresistible. After I was there for a year, the chief of staff of the hospital asked me if I would become the head of the operating room committee. This was a major leadership role. I assumed at the time the invitation resulted from my outstanding credentials. In truth, I later learned that everyone else had turned down the role and I was just too naive to recognize the difficulties the job would entail. Robbie, what happened next? The problems at the time were similar to today. There was a major nurse shortage and ORs were having to be canceled delaying surgical treatment. I came up with a three-part plan. First, we'd use traveling nurses as an immediate solution. And traveling nurses, although common today, were relatively unknown at the time. Second, we trained experienced ICU and ER nurses to work in the operating room. And finally, we'd offer a longer training program for new nursing school graduates. Within two years, the OR was back to full capacity and the backlogs had been eliminated. Jeremy, once a leader has major success, other opportunities become available. Over the next year, I took on a bigger portfolio of administrative roles, all in addition to my full-time clinical practice. I found myself enjoying the combination immensely. In my third year, the assistant physician-in-chief, that's the number two person in the medical hierarchy at a medical center, in this case, Santa Clara, that individual took on a leadership role in another medical center. And the physician in chief at Santa Clara asked me whether I would assume the role of, as assistant physicians in chief. The physician in chief was an internal medicine doctor and he thought the combination of a medical specialist and a surgeon as co-leaders would be powerful. After getting assurance that I could continue my clinical practice, I said yes. And with that role came a series of training opportunities starting with the chance to attend the executive leadership program at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Eventually, the physician-in-chief stepped down, and I was chosen for this role. Suddenly, I was responsible for the 1,000 physicians and 4,000 staff at Santa Clara, and then 350,000 patients who went there for their medical care. How did you end up becoming CEO? In 1998, Kaiser Permanente was in big trouble. The organization had lost hundreds of millions of dollars for each of the previous two years and had to borrow a day of cash to meet the state of California's three-day minimum. The CEO stepped down before the end of his term and a search was announced for a successor. I was very satisfied in my leadership and clinical role at Santa Clara. I telephoned a couple of other medical group leaders whom I respected from across the region and asked if they wanted the role. I told them I'd support their candidacy and help them in any way possible if they were selected. When both said no, I stepped forward, fearful of what would happen if any of the people yearning for the role were chosen. After a comprehensive search process, the Permanente Medical Group Board of Directors chose me for the position. What was your approach? Jeremy, I saw an opportunity to transform Kaiser Permanente from being mainly known as a low-cost healthcare leader to an organization recognized for providing superior quality and outstanding patient satisfaction 
at an affordable price. This massive switch in strategy proved successful. Over that time, we moved from being good in quality to number one in the nation based on the National Committee for Quality Assurance Analysis of 1,000 programs. We provided care that was 20% more satisfying to patients compared to our competition based on J.D. Powers and Associates survey. Our physician's satisfaction was 20% better than the other doctors in California based on comparison to the California Medical Association survey. And our price for care, 10 to 15% lower. As a result, we increased our membership to over 5 million individuals and grew our market share in the geographies in which we provided medical care from 34% to 46%. Based on your experience, what are the three biggest leadership lessons you learned? That's a hard question because there's so many leadership lessons that I learned, some through success and some through having to overcome difficulties. But here are three that listeners might benefit from. First, windows open and windows close. And you need to be prepared to jump through the open ones before you can be certain what lays on the other side. Second, successful leaders are dependent on the people that they surround themselves with and their ability to touch the brains, hearts, and spines of those who are being asked to follow. Finally, that success in leadership requires both strategic thinking and strategic action. Action without thinking, that's aimless. But leaders have to remember that thinking without action, that is powerless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.